This is the Work and With series, presented by your host, Haley Sudbury. Listen in each month to find out who we're working with. Haley sits down with some of the world's most exciting leaders and entrepreneurs to chat about the companies they love, their definition of success, and the real secret behind it all, their superpower. I'm here today with Jacqueline de Rojas, President of Tech UK. Thank you for coming into our offices. Pleasure. Nice to be here. But um, I've got to say, in seeing Jacqueline, she is rocking out in her Converse trainers today. So she's definitely a woman that is, uh, you know, very approachable and very contemporary. Thank you. So great to have you here. Um, a few questions to work through. Starting off, you're a woman who's had a really fantastic career in technology, and I'm sure lots of learnings before you moved into your, your current role at uh, Tech UK. What did you wish you knew before you started out would be helpful right now? Yeah, so I have had a career in the technology industry since forever. And actually, to be to be honest, I first wanted to start out. I wanted to be a newscaster on the BBC. That was my thing. Um, they didn't come knocking, sadly. So I was offered a job in tech, and I took it. Actually, if I, what I really wish I'd known was that I didn't have to act like a man. That's my one thing. Because in my early career, I was definitely an alpha zilla. Well, I even heard people say, gosh, JDR, she eats razor blades for breakfast. You know, and I, inside, in, in part of me, I get why in my early career that was important. Um, you know, it was a really tough environment to survive, and survival is a really good word, I think. And it was full on, it was a sales environment, it was all about making the numbers, it was about dog eat dog. And yeah, I was definitely an alphazilla. And I really felt actually that at a certain point in my, in my journey, to go from manager to leader was the point at which I realized I didn't have to be like that. And that was a really cool learning. I, I suppose what happened was I realised that collaboration, connection was a better way to get the best out of my team and frankly to give people space to be amazing. Wow. And I mean it certainly sounds, you know, you've made quite a transition. We talked earlier before we started recording about, uh, you know, some of your lifestyle choices which have been very healthy and, you know, now it certainly seems that you are drinking obviously green smoothies instead of razor blades. So, you know. You're in quite a different uh, different place. Yeah, totally a different space. And I think this part of it's growing up, isn't it? I think. Um, and you know, for me, I really recognise that if I was going to operate at scale and I was going to operate under pressure, and I was going to find a shorter route to success than the males that I was competing with, I had to do things a little bit differently. And actually that whole collaboration piece and getting the best out of people was definitely, definitely the shortest route to success for me. So who was it that championed you along the way? Yeah, I know people often ask me that. And I, I think from a very early age, I'm going to say age four, I gave myself a label of survivor. And I did that because I grew up in a, in a very challenged background. My mother, my, my, my Chinese father was very violent. My mother took the brunt of all of those 
beatings, shall we say, black eye most weeks. And I became invisible. That was my way of surviving. And I did that until age 16, when my stepfather, uh, who was not really much better than the first go at having a father, found my O-level results, GCSEs these days, and said, um, what have you got? And he opened them, and I had something like nine A's and a B. Good results, anyway. And he said to me, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to show me up? God. And, you know, what's interesting, it was literally like a flash of lightning which said, OK, I've got a fork in the road here. I can either become invisible, stay invisible, which is what I've done, especially at home, or I can show you how amazing I can be. And honestly, I chose the latter. And I'm delighted I, I, I did choose that. And actually, what it also taught me was that the role models I had had, and they weren't great role models, but they did shape me. So I think in life you can have great ones and not so great ones, but actually you can find a miracle somewhere along the journey. And I chose to become a survivor. To answer your question though, what it meant was a survivor doesn't really ask anybody for anything because you have your own resources to depend on. And so asking for help, receiving anything, God look at me at Christmas, I hate receiving gifts of any kind because it makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, I think that's to do with low self-worth. And so I only had mentors pretty late on in my career. I have learned to ask for help. Uh, and I've got one mentor who uses humour to get to me, which is a good way to get to me. Pokes me in the eye and challenges me when I say I can't possibly run another marathon and he'll reply with, yes, well, at 54, Jacqueline, of course, there are no marathons left in you. You can't possibly. You're old and over the hill. <laughs> to which I respond, don't be ridiculous. Of course I can do it. And that's what we call provocative NLP. Um, so, I, you know, I think I had people who cared about me, um, but I don't think I had anyone who particularly championed me. I really relied on my own resources. Not that I advocate that for anyone going forward. I would always say, you know, ask for help because it's out there. And, I mean, you are someone who is very involved in the tech community as a as a champion, a champion for women yes. and a mentor yourself. So, yes. I mean, it's interesting, you know, you've, you've kind of gone on this journey alone for a while, but yet you are someone who's clearly giving back. And I, I take it you get huge value from that process as well. I'm a big believer in it shouldn't be this hard. It doesn't have to be this hard. You know, I talked to 450 um, 16- to 18-year-olds yesterday in Newcastle, and I told them the story of my upbringing, and honestly, I know that it landed with some of the girls, not all of the girls, obviously, but girls that come from, you know, uh, challenged backgrounds, underprivileged backgrounds, they need to know that it's possible, that possibility lives outside of all of that. And that, you know, people like me, people like you, people in our industry, male or female, can just reach out that hand of generosity and make a difference and shorten their route to success, which is, you know, so important. I wonder, I mean, I think, you know, being vulnerable as a leader is, um, you know, terrifying sometimes to be, you know, be authentic, but actually, you know, you are sharing your personal story, which is hugely compelling. At what point in your career did, were you at a point that you felt comfortable that you could start 
you know, sharing this. Yeah, so I would never have admitted it. Oh my gosh, no. It was so locked in, in the basement of my soul, I think. And I think it wasn't until I went from, crossed the chasm from manager to leader, where I realized that that vulnerability could, I suppose it could be the unlocking of potential for somebody else, because if they could see a role model who has that vulnerability or has low self-worth and has the massive fear of failure that I have, but can still navigate a way through in a good way, then, you know, that's also about inspiration and positivity. And uh, yeah, it was definitely the, the manager to leader route. And probably in 1999, when I was told uh, after not getting a job that I'd applied for, I was running a business which was 200 million pounds and 200 people, and I was up against a guy who'd run 10 people and 10 million pounds, something of that order anyway, he got the job. Uh, and I was told, I'm sorry Jacqueline, but we simply don't have women on the leadership team. And at that point, I thought, I'm capable, I'm competent, I'm not going to take it personally, this is a gender thing, this is a culture thing. I went off and got my own job as managing director. And I look back at that as a positive thing in a way which was, at least they said it. I think the worst kind of discrimination is actually when no one says it and you continue to bang your head against the glass ceiling for years and years and years, and you wake up and realize it too late. Mm. And so for me, I found the miracle in the fact that he said it to me. Wow. Well, there's something again, honesty, but I think also clearly knowing when you can change a situation and when you need to actually leave it to create Absolutely. a different environment. Yeah, and sometimes it's not about raging against the machine because, you know... It's exhausting. It's exhausting, and you can get such a bloody nose. And frankly, making a decision to walk away is sometimes the right thing to do. Bizarrely, they came back to me over a decade later and said, come back and fix this company for us. Um, which I did. It was unfinished business and I love it for that. And actually I honour it in the sense that the culture has completely changed. So the circle is squared. Thank the Lord. Fantastic. So if I came to work for you tomorrow at Tech UK, what would be the first thing I'd notice about how you do things? The first thing you'd notice is probably the gender balance, which is 50-50. And um, that's conscious and it's important. Uh, I think you'd notice the diversity of voice, uh, not just the gender diversity, and I think that is really smashing in a team because it doesn't matter who you are, what the hierarchy looks like, you have a voice and you can amp it up anytime you like. Fantastic. So a few Australian accents in there as well, maybe? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> if I asked your team what you like to work with, what would they say? So I'm a big believer in 360s. So, so you know. <laughs> yeah, I do know, actually. Uh, they would say, their words are that I would be an energizer for them. They look to me for someone who can inspire, uh, even when possibility looks grim. Uh, we do a bit of um, inspirational injection and it can change possibility. And I think the idea that the only person you can change is yourself is super important and that's a philosophy that, that I work with all the time because you know even in 
grim scenarios where someone says, we can't have women on the leadership team. You actually can change that. You can walk away from it and go and do something different. There's always possibility. And the only person you can change is yourself. And I think you'd see that at Tech UK. What is your superpower? Yeah, this is an interesting one, isn't it? Um, so my husband will tell you that telepathy is probably my superpower, reading minds, not in a creepy way, um, but in a way where I can navigate a group or a situation. Um, I have spent a lot of time reading people, uh, learning about myself, uh, and figuring out ways to communicate and really make a deep connection with people. And when I have managed to do that, I find that it's easy to read relationships. Uh, empathy is really important in big groups. In fact, I did, I met a UN hostage negotiator and he said to me these words, it's so amazing. He said, uh, when you're faced with a terrorist and they've got a Kalashnikov to someone's head and all you've got are your words, you do choose to, you do tend to choose them rather carefully. And I fell in love with that and I went back to him this summer and did a 10-day course on non-violent communication. <laughs> Mind-blowing stuff. But it's all about understanding what the individual needs are of people who are potentially at war with each other, and not just at war on the battlefield, but around the boardroom table as well. And I can tell you there are some aggressive types, assertive types, there's passive aggressive, which are probably the worst. Um, and I have found through nonviolent communication a way of navigating so that we meet the needs of everybody around the table. And I love that. Well, I have to get the name of that course from you. It sounds fabulous. Amazing. Really amazing. Mind-blowing. Who do you pick up the phone to when things get tough? Yeah, so, well, as a survivor, I have learned to trust a few people. And um, the first person would be my husband. He comes from the technology industry, but he's bought and sold, um, built and sold four companies. He has now retrained as a yoga teacher and our days start with meditation and yoga and I, I am so connected with him that he's the first person I would talk to. There are others though, my children, 25, 27 and 29 they are now, so they're not kids, but they are so smart and they give me perspective and they give me ideas they help me stay connected with the you know, fast-paced tech industry as well so they are um, people I also turn to and I have a mentor who is just ruthless in the pursuit of ambition possibility and just balance and helps me a lot as well so I've got four people in my life I turn to I also have four dogs I've replaced the children with dogs um, <laughs> You know what, there is something about an animal, I don't know if you have animals, but there is something about an animal that completely calms you down. And they're always pleased to see you. Doesn't matter what you've done to them or how you're feeling, just something that lifts me and I love that too. You mentioned your mentor actually a couple of times as yeah. we've been chatting um, and he's clearly a very special person. We've um, talked about a humour connection in a way to get you to do things. How did you come about 
finding that person and maybe building that relationship? Yeah, so randomly, actually. I think it's a gift when someone walks through the door and they have something you want. And what he has is he has the ability to see possibility in things where you think, I just can't get out of this, I can't see a way through. And it's like being faced with an open door when previously there was a brick wall. And I, you know, I found him because I went on a course. I'm a big believer in lifelong learning. And I am a learner. I, my, one of my big skills I'm told through um, strengths-based leadership is strategy. And the second one is that I'm a learner. And so I do like to absorb information, both in the classroom, but also from people. And I detected something in him which I really wanted very badly, which was a freedom from the chains, the policies, the kind of... Somehow when you work in very large tech companies, sometimes you feel you're in that frozen middle of policy and you can't get around things. And he taught me a way to be positively deviant. And that's a big skill. So... I love it. Positively deviant. I think we're going to take that and, and hold on to that if you remember anything from this interview. What difference do you think it, it makes to have more diverse talent leading companies? Simply diversity means better productivity. So there's that business angle. Uh, one woman on the board of a business can reduce the risk of bankruptcy by 20% as an example. And I know from my own boardroom experience, for example, you know, I've been in positions where the chairman of the board has banged his hand on the table and said, we're going to demand the CEO takes a pay cut because the shareholders are literally revolting. <laughs> and I have said, well, why don't I just ask him a few questions? Let's invite him in and see where he's at. Grumpy chairman says, I won't work, but all right. We brought the CEO in, I told him the shareholders were revolting, and I'd asked him if he thought about his position. Of course he was entitled to his salary and his bonus, but if he thought about what was the right thing to do, and he turned to me and he said, yes, I have thought about it, and I've decided to defer my bonus by 50%. And that was a five-fold increase on what we were going to demand from him by banging your hands on the table. And I just offer that as an example of diversity in action. And that's how we can create better business outcomes by creating a diverse voice around the meeting table. Super important. What does success look like for you? Gosh, well for me, I feel very lucky to have had a 30 year plus career in technology. I love the pace of change, embracing change. I love, as I said, learning. So it's the perfect industry for me to learn new things every day, all day. And I learned from the youngest of people. I was with an amazing girl yesterday in Newcastle who said, we were, we were talking about how hard it is to sit down and think, take time out to think critically or write a blog or, or anything. Um, creative writing we were talking about. And she said, well, why don't you write a blog? Because when you write a blog, you get, you're influenced by 
you know, lots of people who want to read it, they give you input, and then you've got a theme and a reason to write creatively and think creatively. It's so amazing that you know, 16-year-olds can just be that smart. It's incredible. I must be getting really old to think that, that in that way. But in a world where we're all participating and not standing by and watching it happen, that motivates me. And tech is a really great space to play and experiment. And also to get it wrong, I've learned in my career that when you move at pace, it, getting it right 80% of the time is okay, 20% is a perfect amount of time to be doing U-turns. And so I've learned about forgiveness in that, especially forgiving myself. So success to me looks like forgiving myself a little bit, but also tolerance of others when they make mistakes, and that certainly wasn't what the Alphazilla Jacqueline de Rockers would have said, but it's certainly what Jacqueline de Rockers would say today. You're a huge proponent of flexible working. What do you think are the cultural challenges in getting companies and individuals to buy into the idea? Well, in a technology-enabled world, work is not a place anymore, it's where you are. So, you know, I can be working in Costa or we are social or on a train, mostly, when the infrastructure works. Um, so I'm a big believer in work is not a place. It's where you are. But I'm also a big believer that great ideas probably go to die in a boardroom and thrive in a coffee shop. I think that's really kind of how we work these days. Culturally, what gets in the way is that there is this sort of frozen middle of management that like to see you um, and feel that you're only being productive when you're there. There's also a lot of bias around um, mums and parents, actually, not just mums, parents who leave at mid-afternoon to go and pick up the kids and are they really being productive. And I think we need to probably look at the metrics and how we measure um, business outcomes and, and what success looks like. Also in the happiness scale, we should look at that as well because retention is going to be a big issue for us in tech already is a big issue as the skills gap grows. Um, I'm also reminded that culturally we have this bias and we program ourselves in gender bias particularly very early on. I saw a photograph this week from Mothercare where you have a blue t-shirt in the boys section which said the word genius on it and the t-shirt in the girls section which says make the world a prettier place. And frankly, that bias horrifies me. But we also have a responsibility there because we as consumers should be horrified enough not to buy the t-shirts because they won't sell them if we don't demand them. It's a supply and demand, you know, algorithm. And I think it's really important that we don't fuel it. How do you think Brexit will impact the tech industry here and what can we do to prepare for it? So I am a big speaker on the circuit around Brexit and I do advise government as well through the Digital Economy Council and the Department for Next in the EU. And we certainly are going to run out of talent in tech if we are protectionist in our views. So part of the referendum was built on let's close the borders because everyone's taking our jobs and what have you. But in technology, 
48% of businesses built in this country were built by non-UK residents, not non-UK residents, non-UK citizens, should I say. And innovation, diversity of thought, the skills gap where we're creating more jobs than we can fill, the domestic talent pipeline is so small and growing at a miserable pace that we have to do more quickly. And I'm working with the Girl Guiding Association where, would you know, there are 400,000 girl guides and my, my job, my mission is to inspire them into STEM or STEAM subjects. But get this, I walked into a village hall um, a couple of weeks ago to meet the first pack and we were going to talk about consent online and what that means. I thought that would be a good place to start. No Wi-Fi in the village hall. So we did a paper-based version of that. We can improvise, we can wing it. However, that means my job then is to bang on the door of number 10 Downing Street and say infrastructure matters. So we have to get our act together from an infrastructure perspective. So that means making sure that we've got Wi-Fi everywhere, that we are inclusive, that rural Wales has as you know, good a service as the City of London, because inclusion is important. If we're going to move at this pace in tech, we can't leave anyone behind. And talent matters. So as that talent gap grows, we will need to turn to women returners, we will need to turn to young kids and say, come into all aspects of STEM, STEAM and life sciences. We will have to turn to getting more women into leadership positions and bordering positions. And we have to support the whole industry in thinking about digital as an option, because even just looking at public sector, adversity says, and budget cuts say, the smartest state is the only state we can afford. And if that's true, you've got to get my mum and dad connected. And they've completely skipped the, the, the keyboard generation. And yet, bizarrely, they're quite happy to shout at Alexa and say, turn on Radio 4 <laughs> or reorder my prescriptions. But they wouldn't have done it with Siri on a mobile device, but they're happy to talk to a robotic thing called Alexa. I wish they hadn't called it a female name, by the way. Alex would have done. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I just think that we have to be very mindful of a digital society we want to create. And as we turn to the machines to be, you know, more of who we rely on in the future, we then have to think about ethical algorithms that run them and who's going to govern them. Because if they are assessing whether you or I are, you know, eligible for a loan or a student place at university or housing, then we better get those algorithms right. And we may, you know, need to make sure that we have governance and auditability of uh, taking bias out of the system because they're programmed by humans. And like it or not, we all have a bias of some kind. You can't edit that out. You can notice it and then readjust. And that's the journey that we're all on in terms of a fast-paced globalisation of our digital society. So from Brexit to addressing bias, I love that. That was very comprehensive. <laughs> well, Jacqueline, it has been wonderful to meet you in person and thank you for coming in today and I look forward to, uh, to continuing to hear about your successful journey. Thank you very much.
You've been listening to the Workin' With podcast series. You can find us on iTunes and at workinwith.com. That's W-E-R-K-I-N with.com. Thank you.